Hey everyone, and welcome to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and I will be your solo host for this episode, which I believe is episode number 39, and I will be very embarrassed if I am wrong about that, but 39 sounds about right. Uh, As I mentioned, I am alone this week, as we announced last week, and as was announced in a recent episode of Two True Freaks. Scott has had to take a brief hiatus, at least I hope it's brief hiatus from podcasting, and instead of shutting the show down uh, while he's gone, uh, we talked about it, and he said it would be okay if I continued doing solo episodes, though I'm thinking of, of bringing on a guest host maybe next time or the time after that, depending on how long Scott's gone. It feels kind of weird, though. I'm going to be completely honest with you that uh, about that. Because, you know, back to the bins, we can have as many guest hosts as we want, because that was the kind of the formula of the show for a while. So that works there. But this is Scott and I's show, so I feel like I would be cheating on him somewhat if I decided to have somebody else on the show. Uh, I am not going to be continuing with All-Star Squadron, uh, again, as we explained the last episode, it just doesn't feel right. That's Scott and I's baby. Uh, well, not the series itself. That is obviously Roy Thomas's and Rich Buckler's and Jerry Ordway's babies. Uh, but, you know, that is the series we're covering. I don't want to cover it without him. So instead of going forward, I have decided to kind of go back and look at the early days of the Earth One concept. And you can't get much earlier... Then The Flash, number 123, from September of 1961. Just a brief history note, I guess is the best way to say that. Uh, Flash Comics ended publication in 1949. This is the Jay Garrick Flash. And the JSA continued on until 1951. And this is actually me trying to correct myself, because I got, I got some things screwed up in my head, basically because I always thought that Flash Comics ended in 1951 and All-Star Comics ended in 1953, or at least All-Star became All-Star Western in 1953. And in doing the research for this episode, I discovered (laughs) that's not the case. You were wrong, Mike. Uh, It's not the first time, won't be the last, but I try to like to make a mea culpa when I am incorrect on something. So Flash ends in 1949, all-Star Comics, or at least the Justice Society, ends in 1951, and there is a five-year period where there is no Flash comics. In fact, the only superheroes DC was really pushing during that five-year period, outside of maybe the odd Aquaman issue uh, or story in, in Adventure Comics, I believe, you had Superman, you had Batman, and you had Wonder Woman. The rest of the big guns of what would become the DC Universe were nowhere to be found. Until Julius Schwartz decided to bring back The Flash in showcase number four in a story by Robert Kaninger and with art by Carmine Infantino. And The Flash proved to be popular enough to get his own series, which picked up from the old Flash's numbering system. And it wouldn't be, though, until 1961, in Flash number 123, that Julius Schwartz decided to reference, uh, as outside of saying that that Flash existed in the world of comic books, uh, actually decided to team up 
Barry Allen with his Golden Age counterpart. And that brings us to The Flash of Two Worlds, which is a novel-sized story, meaning it went through the entire issue instead of having one, two, or three stories spread out through the issue. It was written by Gardner Fox with art by Carmine Infantino and Joe Giella, and it was edited by the legendary Julia Schwartz. We open on Barry Allen, The Flash, looking all upset because he is late to help his girlfriend Iris West with the Picture News Orphan Group. This was very common for this era of The Flash, for Iris to be upset with Barry about something or another. It was actually pretty common for all of the girlfriends of the major heroes to be upset with the secret identity for, for some other some reason or another. When Barry gets there, Iris is all in a tizzy, but not over his lateness. Apparently, the magician she hired to entertain the orphans didn't show up, and the orphans will have no one to bring them joy, because they're orphans and obviously have miserable lives. Barry gets the bright idea to quote-unquote call the Flash, which makes Iris forget about the fact that he was late, and soon the Scarlet Speedster is there giving the kids an amazing show, mostly by playing tennis with himself on stage. And that is not a euphemism for anything, though it kind of sounds like it. It sounds like pocket pool, uh, is what it sounds like to me. He tries a variation on the Indian rope trick, and as he vibrates to look like he is climbing the rope, he pops out of existence. The Flash finds himself in an empty field, and after checking around, the Scarlet Speedster discovers that he is not in Central City, but in Keystone City. But that's impossible, because Keystone City only exists in comic books. But he puts two and two together, and tracks down Jay Garrick. The Flash changes into his civilian clothes, and it is Barry Allen that knocks on Jay Garrick's door. After Jay lets Barry in, he uh, Barry reveals that he knows about the hard water accident that gave Jay super speed and led to Mr. Garrick becoming the Flash. Barry reveals that he too is a Flash and explains to Jay and his wife, and I'm just going to read right out of the book, The way I see it, I vibrated so fast I tore a gap in the vibratory shields separating our worlds. As you know, two objects can occupy the same space and time if they vibrate at different speeds. My theory is both Earths were created at the same time in two quite similar universes. They vibrate differently, which keeps them apart. Life, customs, even languages evolved on your Earth almost exactly as they did on my Earth. Destiny must have decreed that there be a flash on each Earth, which is kind of arrogant when you really think about it. (laughs) Oh, it had to be the flash, because I'm so important. The Flash also reveals his own lightning bolt slash rack of chemicals filled origin and that he read about Jay when he was a boy. And uh, another explanation on that is, you were once well known in my world as a fictional character appearing in a magazine called Flash Comics. When I was a youngster, you were my favorite hero. A writer named Gardner Fox wrote about your adventures, which he claimed to come to him in dreams. Obviously, when Fox was asleep, his mind was tuned in, quote-unquote, on your vibratory Earth. That explains how he, quote-unquote, dreamed up the Flash. The magazine was discontinued in 1949, and Jay says, amazing, that's the very year I, the Flash, retired, which, as I mentioned, isn't quite true. 
Jay's actually kind of glad that Barry stopped by and explains that there have been some mysterious crimes going on in Keystone City. Money seems to float away in a bank. Jewels disappear in an eerie blackness, and an armored car is robbed amid some bizarre music. The two Flashes decide to team up and find out what's going on. We cut to Chapter 2, which is still called The Flash of Two Worlds, where the Shade, the Thinker, and the Fiddler are sitting around gloating about their recent criminal enterprises as the two Flashes split up to investigate the mysterious crimes. The Thinker goes into action first and uses his cap to rob Edward Jarvis, the millionaire. And I almost said Edwin Jarvis there, but he's the butler to the Avengers, so... It would be kind of weird if he was a millionaire. Well, no, maybe maybe, maybe on Earth 2 he is Edward Jar- Jarvis, a millionaire, and Tony Stark is his butler. That would be awesome. The Thinker puts a whammy on the dogs guarding the house to tell the Flash that he is inside before using his cap to convince the butler and then Jarvis himself to let the Thinker take the Neptune Cup. Jay Garrick streaks by the Jarvis estate where the dogs tell him that the Thinker is inside robbing the joint. The Flash rushes inside and keeps trying to grab the Thinker, but the criminal seems to disappear each time. Finally, it is revealed that the Thinker was merely using his cap to fool the Flash and manages to escape. Meanwhile, the Barry Allen Flash chases down the Shade, who is busy stealing historical curios which are, quote, Valued at over five million dollars. The Flash dissipates the Shade's darkness and chases him out to sea, but he too is foiled and the Shade escapes. Barry and Jay head back to Jay's house and compare notes. They decide to go into action together, which brings us to Chapter 3, still titled The Flash of Two Worlds, where the Fiddler is busy causing a ruckus thanks to his violin. The two Flashes launch into action, with Jay saving a man for being crushed by a girder in the same scene from the cover of this issue. The Fiddler escapes, but the Flashes give chase and track him to his hideout. The Thinker and the Shade show up soon after, worried that the Flashes might team up against their compatriot in crime. They get there just in time to see the Fiddler compelling our heroes to dance like the waves of an ocean romance. Whether or not they were liars in love is still up to debate. Satisfied that he has proved that he can control the Flashes, the Fiddler goes to freeze them solid for 24 hours, but the heroes suddenly break free and round up the criminals. At police headquarters, the Flash explains that while the Fiddler forced them to obey him, he neglected to order them not to try and escape. They used tiny gems to block their hearing, and the music no longer had an effect on them. Later, Flash shakes hands with Flash, and Barry heads home, where he tells Iris about his adventure. And when she talks about writing it up, because, you know, that's her job, the Flash tells her that the readers would say it was pure fiction. On the final panel, the Flash thinks that the only ones that would believe the story are the readers of Flash comics, and decides to look up Gardner Fox, who can write up the whole thing in a comic book, of course, probably neglecting the whole, you know, the Flash's Barry Allen thing, because I'm pretty sure this Flash likes a secret identity. Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. That, that, that. That's my hunch, at the very least. Now, heading into the notes that I have for this one, this is... This is a very iconic story, and it has been reprinted oodles of time. 
Uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, it has rep- been reprinted in 80-page giant number 9. That was from the 60s. The hardcover and trade paperback edition of Greatest Team-Up Stories Ever Told. I actually got a copy of the trade of that recently on eBay for really cheap, like 6 bucks with shipping. The Millennium Edition, Flash number 123, which was number 21 in that series. Flash Archives, Volume 3 Hardcover. The Crisis on Multiple Earths, The Team-Ups, Volume 1, which is actually where I read it for the purposes of this show. Flash, The Greatest Stories Ever Told Trade Paperback, which I still have to pick up. Showcase presents The Flash Volume 2 Trade Paperback and The Flash of Two Worlds Hardcover. It is also, as I mentioned, the first appearance of Earth 2. But here's the thing, and I was fascinated to find this out. The terms Earth 1 and Earth 2 are never mentioned in this story. They aren't even mentioned in the second appearance. It isn't until Flash number 137 that the two Earths get their designation, with Justice League of America number 21, which featured the first JLA-JSA team-up, um, naming the Earths as well, and I, it, this just this just this just boggles my mind because of how iconic and how historic this story is. You would think that Earth One and Earth Two, uh, as names, were there from the beginning, but they're not. And I and I kind of like that because it shows the evolutionary process of the creation of the multiverse, because it's not like, you know, Julia Schwartz and the guy sat down, pl- mapped the whole thing out from the beginning, and went from there. It was it was, it was was kind of like Marvel in that way, that they were sort of flying by the seat of their pants, you know, making sure that they were capitalizing on what was successful, but also making it up as they went along. And I always liked that concept, because as much as a well-thought-out universe is awesome. There is also something kind of cool about seeing something grow from the roots up, at least to me. That's just how I uh, that's how I see it. Uh, as a story, though, Flash of Two Worlds, it, it's pretty exciting. I liked it a lot, actually, as this was the first time that I actually sat down and read the thing. Uh, I've, I've had various reprints over the years. I've had access to various reprints over the years. But because I knew basically what happened, I never bothered to actually read the story myself. You know, between who's who entries and flashbacks and retellings and all that, you feel you know something. But But it was great to sit down and read it in all of its Silver Age glory. Uh, despite the historical nature of the issue, this is a pretty typical Flash story of the time. It's heavy on plot and not so heavy on characterization. But in all honesty, The Flash is one of the few Silver Age s- series from DC Comics that I can sit down and read issue after issue after issue. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that back uh, in late 1990, early 1991, I bought a bunch of Flash back issues off of uh, the man that would become my brother-in-law. This is the guy that gave me the Invaders run that I've talked about in previous episodes of this series. And the run he had started with Flash number 137. And I read through all those issues. Years later, I had to sell them because I needed rent money. But 
I I sat down and cracked those Silver Age bad boys open, and I gotta tell you, I loved the hell out of it. So I don't know if it's that kind of not so much boyhood attraction because I was fourteen, fifteen years old at the time. Uh, don't don't like to think of myself as a boy. I was a teenager, but I, maybe it's that you know that that great nostalgic feeling that these stories uh, bring up, uh, especially when I get to Flash number 137, if I get to Flash number 137. I'm actually hoping to cover two issues next week, if I can get my ass in gear and <laughs> and plan out two issues for the episode, but things are kind of busy at work now, so, uh, so, that's, so time is against me, is what I'm basically saying, but... Because I read them then and enjoyed them so much, and actually got a lot out of them, I think now I can read them easier than other stories uh, of the Silver Age in DC that I would just have to jump in with both feet. Because the writing is very different. It's not bad. If you compare one story to another during that time period, you can say one story is bad and one story is good. But I really try not to judge stories from the Silver Age or from the 70s or from the 80s or even from the 90s now that we're 10 years separated from that decade uh, by the standards of the stories today. As a matter of fact, I really don't want to do that because I don't like the storytelling that's going on currently. But regardless of that, you got to take... Uh, and a comic book story, or any story, or any movie, based on what was what was considered good at the time. And this, I'm assuming, would have been considered to be a great issue of The Flash. Uh, at least, at least an exciting one with a new development. You know, I, I know as a comic book fan that I love when new ideas and new concepts pop up uh, in the stories that I read. I, I had that feeling all through reading the post-crisis Superman as I did, uh, you know, growing up from age 11 till just a couple months ago. So, I remember that. I remember the developments, I remember the first appearances, and you get all excited, and I'd like to think that kids and, and, and adults and whoever was reading this story at the time had that same feeling. Now, I said that this story was not so heavy on character, but actually there were a few really good moments in them. Jay Garrick is presented as an older man that, while still in fighting shape, is not as fast as he used to be, and I was kind of fascinated by that. When he faces off against the Thinker, and he's running all around because the Thinker uh, keeps making him think that he's in one place and that he's in another and that he's in another, you know, the Flash runs from one version of the Thinker to the other and eventually starts getting winded, and I was like, well, that's kind of cool. It proves that, okay, he's a little older, he's, he's still fast, but, you know, he is not really as fast as the younger counterpart, you know, as, as Barry Allen. I also like the comment on page 10 that he can still fit into his costume, that he's kept in shape, so <laughs> that, that just made me chuckle for some reason. Now, part of me wants to call the scene where Barry reveals that he knows that Jay is the Flash a, a little odd and complain that Jay is way too trusting of this stranger that basically just comes into his home and drops the dime on his secret identity. But I kept in mind the era that this story was, was told in, as I was kind of talking about before, and thought, well, maybe this made sense back then, so I'll go with it. 
you know, if this story was told today, there would probably be a lot of mistrust, and the two Flashes probably would have ended up fighting at one point. But this was DC in the Silver Age, where if somebody showed up at your house and looked nice enough and had a, you know, had a crew cut and a bow tie and, you know, said, hey, I know you're the Flash. Oh, by the way, I'm a Flash, too. And not only that, I'm from another Earth. Jay Garrick would be like, eh, okay, that, uh, that, 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 that works for me. Um, <laughs> there is actually a funny moment on page 8 uh, where Joan says that she and Jay worked so hard to protect Jay's identity, which I think is funny, considering that, you know, he, ne- he never wore a mask. Vibrating your face is all well and good, but come on. I mean, seriously. And and I, I seem to remember reading at least one or two stories where somebody stumbles on the Flash's identity. And if I'm remembering correctly, Jay Garrick didn't do a good job about hiding his identity in the early days of his career. So we're not talking about the master of disguise here. Changing gears a little bit, I find it kind of fascinating to see the shade in action uh, in these Silver Age stories after reading through James Robinson's Starman series. Uh, That series was my first real exposure to the shade. And seeing him as kind of a, and I mean this affectionately, as a two-dimensional villain is just odd because I I keep thinking he's doing this just because he's bored. And he wants something to keep himself entertained. But I know that's not what's going on in the, the mind of the character on the page. But it's what I'm projecting onto the page. It's just, it's just kind of weird to me. The Thinker... Excuse me, apparently I'm going through puberty again. The Thinker is a character I, I never had much use for. And this story didn't do much to change my mind. He's, he's an old man with basically a... Uh, what would you call that... Uh, I call them a strainer, but that's not the word you want to use. Uh, a colander. <laughs> Basically, he's an old man with a colander on his head, and I, ju- I just really don't have much use for him. I will say this, though. My opinion of the Fiddler changed a bit, and I do like the character a little more than I did before, because on previous episodes I was like, I don't like the Fiddler, but you know what? He's actually kind of cool. He's got an interesting ability, and he's got a very distinct look. So, uh, yeah, Scott's kind of rubbed off on me uh, in in that way. A couple more things uh, before I I wrap this episode up. Uh, At the very end of the story, The Flash tells Iris not to print the story because, you know, who would believe it? It would be pure fiction. And and I can kind of buy that, but I also have to think that these are the same readers that are reading about a dude with a cold gun, a dude with a heat gun, a magician from the future, uh, I think by this point a reverse flash, and, oh, yeah, there's a dude running around the city that can run faster than light. But the concept of a multiple Earth, that's a bridge too far, which I kind of see, but at the same time, I really don't. Uh, And finally, I am amused at how the Flash's managed to escape from the Fiddler only because of the fact that they got off on a technicality, basically, and this sounds like something my wife would come up with. She is the queen of technicalities, sometimes trying to get her, uh, like, for example, trying to get her to tell me what's wrong. I have to ask it in such a way, because if I say, are you okay, she will say, I'm fine, which is true at the moment, so it's true when she says it. And it used to infuriate the hell out of me. Now I find it kind of endearing, and this sort of thing is right up her alley. All in all, 
this is a great story and, and one that still holds up after all these years, at least to me. Uh, moving on to Elseworld in the DC multiverse, because the multiverse was born this month, even though there were no other stories set on other Earths. Uh, DC Comics was a very different place in 1961. I'm looking over these covers from Makes, Makes, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and we have Girls Romance number 78, Falling in Love number 45, Girls Love Stories, number 81, so apparently the romance uh, genre was still in full flower. We have Our Army at War, number 110, which kind of has a neat cover. Tomahawk, at number 76, which was a frontier character. House of Mystery, which has a robot causing a ruckus on the scene. We got Superboy, number 91. We got Superman... Superman's pal, number Jimmy Olsen, number 55, where Jimmy has apparently knocked Superman the fuck out because uh, he's laid out on a, <laughs> on a boxing ring. We have Blackhawk, number 164. Uh, I wonder if this is before they got the goofy costumes. I, I really I, I can't make out the cover right now. Uh, we, we trip into DC's licensed land with the many loves of Dobie Gillis, number nine, based on the sitcom of the time period, and the adventures of Jerry Lewis, number 66. And uh, I've come to the conclusion over the years that there are two types of comic book fans, those that love Jerry Lewis comics and those that don't. And those that do will track down issues across the earth to get a complete set, and I kind of find that kind of uh, amazing. Uh, we have Batman number 142, where he's fighting a giant lizard with a snake with wings on top of a pyramid. Uh, of course, Flash number 123. We have a Bizarro story in Adventure Comics number 288. We have Brainiac in Action Comics number 280. Uh, World's Finest number 120 came out that month, as did Rip Hunter Time Master number 4. Mystery in Space number 70, which has Adam Strange in it. All American Men of War number 87. Tales of the Unexpected number 65. Uh, Our Fighting Forces number 63, which has the Pooch (laughs) Tank Buster. The Atom is finishing out his run. Uh, within an issue or two, and Showcase number 34, I could be wrong on that, but I seem to remember that's one of the last Adam issues before he got his own series. And Batman and Robin are fighting a weird alien in Detective Comics number 295. So uh, that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, come back next week uh, if Scott hasn't returned when I will be covering The Flash number 129, which is the second appearance of Earth 2, and if I can get the time, maybe 137, which is not only the third appearance of Earth 2, but also the reforming of the Justice Society in the Silver Age. And that's actually just a really good story. I look forward to talking about that. So I appreciate you all sticking with me as we go through this Scottless uh, period of Tales of the JSA. Scott will return, and we will resume All-Star Squadron with issue number 10. But for now, it's just me, or me and maybe somebody else, if I, if I can reconcile in my head to do that. But thanks, everybody, and we do appreciate it. See you next week. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. 
If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos. We love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America.